You're listening to a sermon preached at Meridian Church. For more information about Meridian Church, visit meridianchurch.com. It is our hope that this sermon is used by the Holy Spirit to minister to you the grace and peace found in Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. And now, here's your sermon audio. Open God's holy word to the Gospel of John. John chapter 7. Our focus today will be on verses 25 through 52. I'll be reading verses 21 through 52. John 7, beginning with verse 21. Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision. Not that is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. When the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer And then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying you will seek me, and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures, Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been, had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these things, Some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? 
Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Father, we come to you acknowledging that the flesh profits nothing. It is the Spirit who gives life. And so we plead, you would send your spirit to dispel all the sinful, atrocious myths and imaginations that we have of who Christ is, and that we would hear the Father's witness by the Spirit, through the Word, of who Christ is, that we would Embrace it with faith. And that those who don't know you, they would see, they would believe. And this spring of water would gush forth from hearts of stone and that there would be life. And that your people, that this spring would freshly gush that faith would be strengthened, and that Christ would be exalted. Send now your Spirit, not because of any goodness in us, but for the goodness that is in you, for the glory of your name, for the glorifying of your Son, Father, we ask this in His name. Amen. There's an easily overlooked word in verse 25 that's massive for understanding everything that follows. It's buried in there. It's a word that you know. If you have any kind of inkling, any kind of acumen, any kind of skill in interpreting the Scripture, you know to look for this word. But just because of how it's situated in verse 25, you can easily miss it. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? Some of the people of Jerusalem Therefore, said. The NAS makes it more prominent. It translates that therefore as so. So, some of the people of Jerusalem were saying. But even still, that doesn't grasp the Greek syntax here as best it could. Strictly translated, it would be something like, Therefore, said some of the Jerusalemites. Therefore, Said Fundamentally, this therefore really is not doing anything more impressive than telling us the conclusion, the result of what's come about because of Jesus' interactions and His teachings at the Feast of Booths. But, because of how John's arranged his narrative, that therefore, telling us of this result, comes after Jesus' call to not judge by appearances but judge with right judgment. 
So that therefore is not connecting their words with Jesus' command. Do not judge by appearances. But because of how John has put this narrative together, they are responding to the Christ who's brought everything to that climactic command. Not to judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. So this therefore is the first in a multitude of therefores that you see in the remainder of chapter 7. A multitude of judgments. Do not judge by appearances. Judge with right judgment. This is the first therefore of judgment that we'll see in a host of therefore judgments. And that this is the theme of this chapter can be seen whenever you look at the end of it. Nicodemus asks his fellow Pharisees, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And they reply, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. They judge and they judge by appearance. And Nicodemus is calling for them to make right judgment. So you've got Nicodemus echoing Jesus' command given in verse 24. That brackets everything that happens in between here. So the first therefore in this cacophony of therefore judgments is unique in who makes it. The group that is identified here is only identified with this word twice in all the New Testament. You have it as the people of Jerusalem. It's one word in, in the original language. Jerusalemites. That's the act, it's just a Greek word that you can really almost bring right over into English. Jerusalemites. This is a feast. So there would be hordes of people coming into Jerusalem from Judea, from Galilee in the north, and from those Jews who are dispersed all over what is now the Roman Empire. But they were dispersed way back due to exile under Babylon. They've all crowded in. And now we're focused though in, on the Jerusalemites in particular. Remember that it was the crowd we are told that objected in verse 26. Excuse me, verse 20. You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus says, you're seeking to kill me. And the crowd asks, who? That crowd is no doubt predominantly made up of Galileans, pilgrims that have come into Jerusalem from afar. The Jerusalemites who are constantly around their leaders seem to know better. Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? They know what we were told in 518 when last we saw Jesus in Jerusalem. This is why the Jews, referring to the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, the leaders, the authorities, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. They know something of what we learned whenever we were approaching the Feast of Booths, verse 1 of this chapter, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. 
This is why the atmosphere is so tense, as we saw in verse 13. For fear of the Jews, again their leaders, no one spoke openly of him. So it's clear they mean to disparage their leaders. They're mocking them. Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? Here he is speaking to the people, and they say nothing to him. It's clear they mean to disparage their leaders, but how do they mean to do so? In what way? Are they saying, do they believe in him too? We believe in him. They believe in him too. Is that why they're not doing anything? Or is it that they are... So that would put them in a better position with which they're judging their leaders. Or is it they're in a worse position? They're not only judging... They're judging their leaders because they're judging Jesus. So the leaders think they're better than Jesus. And they think they're better than Jesus and their leaders who are doing nothing. I think that's clear that that's the case. Do they mean, do they, do they think that He's the Christ too, like we do? Or do they think He's the Christ like these crowds that are believing it whenever we know where He comes from? And when the Christ comes, no one will know where He comes from. Now, by that, we don't need to take it that they thought, We won't know he's from Bethlehem as the scriptures teach. It's simply to say, whenever the Messiah comes, here's our theology, he comes and he appears and he delivers. Don't know where he came from. He'll be born in Bethlehem. He'll be the son of David. But whenever the Messiah comes, the Christ, he just comes. He appears. But we know where he comes from. They know where he comes from. This picks up on two themes that we see again and again in this text that color their remarks. We know where he comes from. The first is this. Throughout this chapter, Jesus' origin is ridiculed again and again. We know where he comes from. And second, this disparagement that the Jerusalemites heap on their leaders is the same mockery the leaders make of the people in general. The end of this chapter, temple officers come back having failed to arrest Jesus. And the leaders exclaim, Have you also been deceived? The crowd, they don't know the law, They're accursed. And then whenever Nicodemus offers his protest, are you a Galilean too? So these Jerusalemites are mocking their leaders by mocking Jesus and essentially asking of them the same question they ask of those temple officers. Have you been deceived too? Do you think he's the Christ? Why are you doing nothing? Are you from Galilee? They know where this man comes from. They think Christ is just to appear. What's striking is that John expressly tells us that this sentiment, this statement, is found on the lips of those who are Jerusalem, Jerusalemites. 
They know where he comes from. They're not Galileans. What a ghastly thing human pride is. That it would puff itself up at the humility of God come down. Christ has humbled himself to come down and they puff themselves up with where they've come from. Sinner, if you've ever thought to yourself, I'm not that bad. I don't need a Savior. I don't need a God to come down to spill His blood to deal with my sins. Realize you have this same atrocious sin of these Jerusalemites. You puff yourself up at God come down. It would have done them good to remember where they came from. They're the offspring of Abraham, who was an idolater in Ur of the Chaldees when God called him. It would have done them good to remember they are like all the Gentiles all around them, the offspring of Adam, bearing his guilt and his corruption. It would have done them good to remember that they were the sons of those who killed the prophets, who broke the covenant, and who were exiled for their covenant unfaithfulness. If you've ever thought, I know where this man comes from. Galilean peasant born some 2,000 years ago. If you've ever thought, I know. You know so very little. You know a little truth about Jesus. And a little truth about Jesus can be a damning and dangerous thing. Do not reject Jesus for a little true knowledge of Him. The reason you know so very little is because of your pride. And the reason you're proud is because you know, you think you know where you come from. You may boast of having royalty. You may boast of having an education, inheritance, prestige, a name. You may boast of pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps and climbing the ladder from the bottom. But all of these are nothing before the holy God of heaven. Do not boast before the God who came down And took on flesh to save souls. Boast before Jesus Christ. And you have no hope. Of salvation. Their judgment does not condemn Jesus. Jesus condemns their judgment. Verse 28. You know me. And you know where I come from. But I've not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true. And him you do not know. Jesus basically tells him, yes, you know where I come from, but you don't know. It's like looking down at the prince of some pristine island nation because his connecting flight stateside came through some obscure town of ill repute. The God of heaven has decided to visit Jerusalem 
via Galilee, and they looked down on him because of it. It's striking that as you look through John, John doesn't mention Bethlehem. He leaves that to the synoptic gospels. He assumes them, as he so often does. He wants to speak and highlight something else. He tells us, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. He doesn't tell us anything of the temporal generation of Jesus, conceived in the womb of the virgin, born in Bethlehem. He tells us of the eternal generation of the Son by the Father. He doesn't tell us that He came from Bethlehem. He tells us that He came from heaven. The, Jerusalem, the Jerusalemites know from whence Jesus just came, but they don't know from whence He was sent. He was sent by His Father. He was sent from heaven. F.F. Bruce comments, The language is simple and unambiguous. The claim is august. Jesus asserts afresh His unique relation to the Father and His hearers cannot miss the implications of His words. It was for such words that they sought to arrest Him when, he was last, when we last saw Him in Jerusalem. And they have the same kind of volatile reaction once again. But I think it's a different audience this time. Verse 30. So they were seeking to arrest him. Who's the they? The most natural interpretation is it's the Jerusalemites. The Jerusalemites say this, and then we read verse 28. So Jesus proclaimed, and his words are directly related to what the Jerusalemites are saying. And then we're told, so they were seeking to arrest him. The problem is, you read verse 31 and you, you begin to think, oh, the contrast is between the people and the leaders, yet many of the people. I think the contrast is between the Jerusalemites versus those who have come from outside of Judea into Jerusalem. And if you think it's weird that the Jerusalemites would be trying to arrest Jesus... That's what the leaders would do. If you think that's weird, look at verse 43 and 44. There was a division among the people over him. Some of them, who? The people, not the leaders. Some of them wanted to arrest him. By it, it means they wanted to seize him, bring him before the authorities. So here are the Jerusalemites saying, the leaders won't do it. We'll do it and get the ball rolling for them. We'll arrest him. It's demonstrating what Jesus said that many denied in verse 19 that it's true. Excuse me, verse, uh, verse, yes, verse 19. Why do you seek to kill me? In contrast now, to this group of Jerusalemites, we have many people who believed in him. So they were seeking to arrest him. No one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. But they believe in him saying, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? There's something true here. We can get the impression that signs were just always happening as we read the Scriptures. 
The signs are really grouped in three big clusters. You find a huge cluster in the Old Testament, a huge cluster in the New, and then there's, a, there's another little cluster in between there. First big close, cluster, Moses in the Exodus. Signs and signs and signs. Another group of signs come with the emergence of the prophets dealing with apostate kings, with Elijah and Elisha. And then the last group being with Christ. So there's something to it that there is this group of signs accompanying major pivotal points of revelation being given to the people of God. But the way they say it reminds us of the Jews during Jesus' first Passover that John mentions who were told that when they saw the signs, they believed in Him. But it's a spurious, fake kind of belief. And that's made clear because we're told But Jesus did not on His part entrust Himself to them because He knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for He Himself knew what was in man. John 2, 23-25. Then you have Nicodemus come to Jesus, chapter 3. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher. Come from God for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. We know you're come from God because of these signs, plural. But the Nicodemus didn't really know. Jesus makes clear when he says, you must be born again or you cannot see the kingdom of heaven. While we are told that many of the Samaritans believed because they heard. It's immediately said in contrast with the Galileans who we are told welcomed him because they saw. All that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, chapter 3 and verse 45. And Jesus goes on to say to those Galileans, verse 48 of chapter 3, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. That crowd that was following Jesus, with which he would feed the bread and the fish, miraculously, we are told was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the 6th, chapter 6, verse 2. But whenever Jesus begins to impress upon that very crowd the significance of those signs, He begins to put it before them again and again what those signs mean. They grumble and they depart. The crowd here is impressed by the sheer number of signs. They say nothing about the significance of the signs that they've seen. Note that John only gives you a smattering of signs. Seven. He said that these signs are written that you might believe. He gives you seven signs plus the sign of signs, the death and resurrection of Christ. That you might believe. You don't need to see a huge number of signs. You need to see the significance of the signs given. It's not the seeing of a huge number of signs. God, show me a sign. It's not seeing a sign that will give you faith. It's seeing the significance of of the signs given that will give you faith. And finally, we see the chief priest and the Pharisees along with them seeking to arrest Jesus as well. In chapter 5, the same leaders sought to arrest Him because He was breaking the Sabbath and making Himself equal to God, calling God His Father. They sought to arrest Him for Sabbath-breaking and blasphemy. 
That's why the people are seeking to arrest him. The Jerusalemites, verse 30. So they were seeking to arrest him. But this time, the leaders are not seeking to arrest him because of his words. They are seeking to arrest him because of the words of the crowd. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. And the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. They hear some of the crowd saying, the Jerusalemites, we want to arrest him. And this gives them the faux courage, the false courage. They're in courage, but they don't have any courage. Oh, they're going to arrest him, now we'll arrest him. That's a politician's move. And they hear some of the crowd saying, he's the Christ, and this terrifies them. So now they have to do something about him. We have all these reactions to Jesus, and they're very diverse, and yet they're all very wrong. There are only two judgments about Jesus to be made. There's right judgment, and there's wrong judgment. It comes in all kinds of different flavors, but it's wrong judgment. And what all the wrong judgments amount to is this. They wish that the Jesus that is, was not. Some people just want to erase Jesus, leave him erased. Others want to erase Jesus and then draw him back as they see fit. But both of them are both a seeking to annihilate he who is the I am. This is our ultimate condemnation. That the ultimate witness the triune God comes to man and we make wrong judgment about Jesus. Now with this official action being made to arrest Jesus in verse 32, having been taken, the suspense is heightened as our attention is diverted to Jesus. We don't see the officers. Pause on the officers. We want to know what happens of their attempt to arrest Jesus. And it's heightened as Jesus begins to say, I will be with you for a little longer. Chief priest, go arrest him. I will be with you a little longer. And then I'm going to him who sent me. He begins to disclose something of that hour. They couldn't arrest him at this time, we were told, because his hour had not yet come, verse 30. But his hour is very close, yet a little while. Not at this feast, the Feast of Booths, but in six months' time, the Passover, then they will arrest him. Then his hour will have come, then he will go to him who sent him. And then, ironically, after he leaves, they will seek him and they will not be able to find him because where he is, they cannot come. Jesus will say these exact words, linking it to this very instance and the repetition of it in chapter 8. Jesus will say these very words to his disciples, linking it to his, it's his saying it to the Jews. In chapter 13 and verse 33, little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. 
But that addressed little children changes the tone, and I think you'll see the meaning of what he says, where I am, you cannot come. Whenever he puts the little children with it, it has the sense of where I am, you cannot come yet. Now, I'm not grasping at straws. Consider two things. In his high priestly prayer in John 17, Jesus not only prays, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you. Father, glorify me in your own presence. That's where he's going. With the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And then he goes on to pray, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see the glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. May be with me where I am. You cannot come yet. But here, it has a much more ominous tone. When he says you cannot come, He means, insofar as you stand in this opposition towards me, you cannot come ever. You cannot come to the Father unless you come to me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And that 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 is what he's saying is clear whenever he repeats this in chapter 8 and verse 21. So he said to them again, I am going away And you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. It's an absolute cannot. You make a wrong judgment about Jesus, and there's only one judgment you can expect before God the Father. And it's condemnation. The Jews reply asking where Jesus intends to go. Will he go to the dispersion, the Jews throughout the empire? Will he go to those Jews among the Greeks? And there, will he teach the Greeks? Now, is this speculation or is it sarcasm? Nervous sarcasm. Like whenever the junior varsity is challenged and they they mock because that's all that they can do. I think it's exactly that. You going to go talk to the Greeks? Is that where you're going to go? And thus, either way, what they demonstrate is that they don't understand what Jesus is saying and they fall prey to the indictment of Nicodemus. They've judged him before they have any kind of idea what he's about. And the irony is that when Jesus leaves and they seek him and they cannot find him, he will be at the right hand of the Father from whence he has sent his spirit on his body, the church, who will go to the Jews among the dispersion and from there preach the gospel to the Greeks. That is exactly where he will be when they seek him. Fulfilling messianic promises like Isaiah 42. I am Yahweh. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people a light to the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, and from, pris- from the prison, those who sit in darkness. 
then have the suspense of what's going to happen to Jesus further heightened as John takes us to the final day of the feast, verse 37, the great day of the feast. It's the last day, the great day. The Feast of Booths, per the law, had, was seven days, and then followed by a Sabbath day. No work was to be done, a day of celebration. So I think it's that eighth day now that's being referred to. And we know from other documents, extra-biblical documents, not in the Scriptures, of a ceremony, a rite, that was performed dating at least some 200 years before Christ. They began doing this. During the Feast of Booths, every morning for those first seven days, not the eighth day, only on those seven, a priest would walk from the temple to the pool of Siloam, fill up a golden pitcher, bring it back to the temple, and dump it out beside the altar. And the significance of this is no doubt tied to that the Feast of, the Bo- Feast of Booths was a celebration of God's provision. And key to that provision was water. It looked back on their watering in the wilderness and recalls the water that gushed forth from the rock. And the Feast of Booths was also a celebration not only of His provision in the wilderness, but His provision in the land. It was a harvest celebration. And so there were prayers that would accompany this rite that were looking forward to God providing rain in the year ahead so that there would be another harvest and another celebration of the Feast of Booths. And so it is with this water rite having been done every morning for the past seven days and not on the eighth day that we find Christ extending this invitation. If anyone thirst, let him come to me. And drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. As the scripture has said, where does the scripture say this? I don't think Jesus is referring to any particular text in isolation, but to a host of text, a, a testimony of the scriptures altogether here. Isaiah 12, 3 speaks of joyfully drawing water from the wells of salvation. Isaiah 58, 11 says that Yahweh will satisfy their desires in scorched places so that they shall be like a watered garden, a spring of water whose waters do not fail. It's drawing on Exodus imagery there. Many texts speak of redemption coming to Israel so that waters flow forth Rivers and streams flow forth from Jerusalem and from the temple itself, as spoken of by Ezekiel, Joe, and Zechariah, even referring to them as living waters. This is the right judgment to be made of Christ. If you make the right judgment, you don't mock Him, you don't redraw redraw Him, you come to Him as He's declared Himself. You come, you believe, and you're, you're believing in such a way that you drink. And you drink in Christ in such a way that the Spirit then becomes this well. God strikes the heart of stone with conviction. And it breaks and it sees and it grasps Christ and waters of life flow. I don't want to get sidetracked, but I do think this is one of the most puzzling texts in the New Testament. 
verse 39. He said this about the Spirit, whom those who believed in Him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. How is it that the Spirit is not yet given when one must be born again to see the kingdom of God? How is it that the Spirit is not yet given when Peter makes the confession, you are the Christ, and Jesus tells Peter, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. How is it that the Spirit's not yet given when Paul says that no one confessed that Jesus is the Lord except in the Spirit? How is it that the Spirit's not yet given whenever the flesh profits nothing, it's the Spirit who gives life? How is it that the Spirit's not yet given whenever we look at Old Testament saints and we see them loving God, serving Him? The tension is normally alleviated whenever I look to Acts and the epistles and I see the spirits being given all in terms of corporate empowerment and not personal indwelling. So I see the Spirit coming on the church at Pentecost, empowering them to testify of Christ, gifting them to do the calling of the Great Commission and to edify and build one another up. That alleviates it. The problem is when I go to John 7, it's all in terms of personal indwelling, not corporate empowerment. And it's actually as I began to think, this is how I personally found peace and resolution in this. It's whenever I began to think along the terms of, okay, I see corporate empowerment being the major emphasis in Acts and the epistles, but Was not Israel empowered by the Spirit in a sense as well? And the answer is obviously and emphatically, yes, she was. Following the return of the exiles to Jerusalem, where we see them celebrating this very feast, the Feast of Booths in Nehemiah 8. It's a beautiful celebration. Following it, shortly thereafter, we find the Jews gathered again. They're weeping and wearing sackcloth and they're fasting. They're repenting before the Lord. And the Levites began to rehearse before the people all of God's covenant faithfulness. And as they do so, this is part of what they say. Nehemiah 9, 19 and 20. You and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. What's striking there is that he gave them his spirit and he gave them water. I think it's the very text Jesus is kind of drawing on with His language here. The Spirit was present corporately with Israel in the Old Testament. But He's present in a fuller, more manifest and mighty way under the New Covenant. 
Likewise, the Spirit obviously indwelt Old Testament saints. But He indwells under the New Covenant in a fuller, richer, more glorious way. I think you can see this in the reality Jeremiah was speaking of whenever he spoke of the New Covenant. In chapter 31 of Jeremiah, No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. There were some Old Testament saints who knew the Lord. They knew Him. And they were calling out to other Jews under the covenant, Know the Lord, but they didn't know Him. So what's the promise of the new? No more will they do this. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares Yahweh. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. And there are other plates where he talks, he talks about this knowing is a writing of God's law on their heart. It's a work of the Spirit giving them a new heart. So it's not that that, that truth is completely alien in the Old Covenant. It's that it's... it's It's enshrouded in mystery, and only some of those who are in covenant know them. But in the new covenant, not only will all know Him, they'll know Him in a fuller, deeper, more profound way. In the same way that Israel in the old covenant was empowered by the Spirit, but the church is empowered in a more glorious way. So it is with the indwelling of believers. So much for not getting sidetracked too much. The people's judgments, verses 40 through 44. Resuming our narrative, the suspense is still suspended. What's happening of that arrest? As we see once more a variety of judgments made by the people. Some, he is the prophet, referring again to the prophet of Deuteronomy 18, 18 and 19, the prophet like Moses. Some, he is the Christ. Others... Object, the Christ doesn't come from Galilee. He comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was. And so there's a division among the people about him. And some want to arrest him, which finally brings us back to that theme. What happens of that attempted arrest? The officers report back. They report back without Jesus. And so naturally, they are agitated. Why did you not bring him? And their reply, no one ever spoke like this man. This seems to be the most sincere and authentic judgment made about Jesus in this entire text. It doesn't go far enough, but it is true as far as it goes. And it's a lot closer than anyone else. No one ever spoke like this man. He's utterly unique. There's no one else like him. Which brings you back to his words. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. The Pharisees now take the lead in dealing with this and ask, Have you been deceived too? Just like these accursed crowds that don't know the law. Have you been deceived too? Are there any of us, the authorities, the Pharisees, have any of us believed in Him? 
You see the elitism, the same kind of pride demonstrated by the Jerusalemites, carried even higher. Have any of us, the educated, the elite, have we believed in Him? Have any of the Pharisees believed in Him? Well, we have Nicodemus' objection. Yes, we don't have a full-blown confession. But Nicodemus, I mean, listen to how he's described, who had gone to him before, recalling John chapter 3. A seed has been planted, and it's working its way in his heart, the truth of Christ. And so he, he asks, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? We don't have a full-blown confession, but we have a dissenting opinion among the judges here. J.C. Ryle comments, slow work is seldom, slow work is sometimes the surest and most enduring. Nicodemus stood firm when Judas Iscariot fell away and went to his own place. No doubt it would be a pleasant thing if everybody who was converted came out boldly, took up the cross, and confessed Christ in the day of his conversion. But it's not always given to God's children to do so. Saints, do not mourn the slow work of God. Nicodemus echoes Christ's command to make right judgment. And what do they do? They judge by appearances. Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. They judge by appearances. This is a peculiar way to end this episode. With this this call from the Pharisees ringing in our ears. Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Now it doesn't ring with the kind of authority that Jesus' call came with. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. And yet we see, we, we sense that these two things are in harmony. They speak much wiser than they know. They're clueless, but they prophesy in a kind of way. And they bring us back to Jesus' challenge. Search, search. And so we search, and what do we find? There was a prophet who came from Galilee, Jonah. 2 Kings 14.25 expressly, no doubt, he came from Galilee. But even so, then we begin to think, okay, you're calling for right judgment. Don't judge by appearances. Jesus came from Galilee, but he was born in Bethlehem. He was the son of David. Furthermore, we've learned he came from heaven. And he's the son of God. Judge with right judgment judgment. If we search the Scriptures, we'll see, just as He told the Pharisees, that they testify of Him. In this text, you hear a multitude of judgments about Jesus. But don't miss the witness that stands out above and through them all. The point of this text isn't to tell you all these wrong witnesses. The point of this text is the father's witness to his son. That if you would come to him, if you would drink, if you would believe, you would find the Holy Spirit welling up within. How do you make right judgment? You make it the same way Jesus did, John 5. I can do nothing on my own. 
as I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Don't judge by how things appear to you. Judge by how the Father has revealed them to be. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Search and see that Jesus is the Christ. The Scriptures testify of Him again and again. Don't refuse Him for your short-sighted perceptions. Come to Him, drink, Drink by believing who He is, trusting in who He is, embracing Him, and you will find a well of living water bursting forth from your stony heart. You will be made new. You'll be saved. Let's pray. Holy Father, thank You for Your Word, the testimony of Your Spirit to who Christ is. May it find fertile ground now with renewed hearts, watered by Your Spirit, bursting forth with life. Father, praise be to You for opening our eyes to behold the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It's all Your work. Thank You that we haven't substituted it by trying to erase Him completely or redraw Him according to our preferences, even though we fall into that kind of sinful idolatry again and again. You're renewing our perception of who Christ and renewing us into the image of the true Christ. And so may we grasp a little more as your people something of who he is and and the glory of what we've been brought into in seeing and knowing him. Grant us discernment to judge more and more rightly who Jesus is, that we might be conformed to his image, that he might be glorified in all that we do. In the strong name of Jesus, we ask this. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon audio from Meridian Church. Please feel free to share this resource with others. We only ask that you do not alter the content in any way. Again, you can find more resources at meridianchurch.com.